Good morning. My name is Debbie. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Israel, listen. Our God is the Lord, only the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Evan. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. So, concerning the actual food involved in these sacrifices to false gods, we know that a false god isn't anything in this world, and that there is no god except for the one god. Granted, there are so-called gods in heaven and on the earth, as there are many gods and many lords. However, for us believers, there is one God, the Father. All things come from Him, and we belong to Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things exist through Him, and we live through Him. The Word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Eric. If you are able and have not already done so, please stand for the Gospel reading, which is found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him, there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Would you remain standing as we pray before we begin this morning with our time in the Word of God? Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that we have your Word to us as one of the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. We're not groping in the dark. And so we pray, Lord, with the psalmist who said that the entrance of your Word brings light and life. Let your Word do that this morning. Let it bring light to our hearts and our minds. Let it bring life to us where we are weary, where we are dying on the inside. Let your word bring us to life. We thank you for who you are. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Great to see all of you today on this January day. We are in week two of a series that we began last week. And the series is called, Who is God? And the way that the series is going to work is it's going to take us all the way to the end of May, but because it's so long, we're going to actually divide it up in three 
sections, and we're going to talk about who is God the Father, the first person of what Christians call the Trinity. And then from Easter, or leading up to Easter, we'll take six or seven weeks and ask the question, who is God the Son? That is Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And then the, the third movement of this series after Easter will be who is God the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit, and all along the way, we're going to be, because of the way we're uh, structuring this series, we're going to be dealing with this mystery and beauty of what Christians refer to as the triune God, the Trinity. And our hope is not to explain this to you or give you metaphors about this, because all metaphors fail, but our hope is that by coming to encounter the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit, you will see that this is one God. Now, last week, before, uh, as the sort of week one of the series, last week we said, let's start with a bigger question, not who is God, but who needs God? And in some ways, it's a bigger question because we don't want to take for granted in our day that we, we all sort of say, well, yeah, of course, there's a God, and of course, we need to know who he is. Last week, we said, well, who actually needs a God? And if you missed it, you can catch it on the podcast or on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page. But we began by talking about how life has big questions, questions like, what is the world and who are human beings and how are we supposed to relate to one another or to nature around us? How should we organize societies? And big questions require a big story in which to find meaning and our place. And we talked about how for many, many years that one big story was a story of God and Yet in the West, for the last couple hundred years, there's been this decision to say, what if we don't need a God story? What if we can answer these questions without a God story? And then last week, we talked about how the God that the Bible reveals is a God who reveals himself. Not a God that we go searching for, but a God who comes looking for us. Not a God who is hidden up in the mountains and we have to find our spiritual quest and guess what he's like, but a God who from the very beginning said, let there be light, a self-disclosing, self-revealing God. And we talked about that the, 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 the full image of God is seen in Jesus Christ. The New Testament says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or as one of the writers in the New Testament puts it, Jesus is the imprint of the Father. And so last week we said, what would it be like if you responded to not a generic God figure, but a God who looks like Jesus, and then a God who is three in one. And this morning, we begin our, our mini sort of subdivision here about the Father, and we're talking about who is God, the Father, and specifically what it means to say that he is one, the one God. And some of you know that I, I grew up in Malaysia. I think I say this like almost every week. If you haven't heard it, you, you probably haven't been here uh, that long. But I'm from Malaysia. And Malaysia is a country with lots of different religions. Uh, the primary religion is Islam. About half the people in Malaysia are Muslims. And then you have about 25% or so that are uh, Buddhists. Maybe 20% or so, somewhere around there that are Hindus. And then Christians, I know if you're doing math in your head, you're like, you're running out of room here. Uh, Christians make up about 10% of that population. And my dad grew up in a Hindu home. So his parents were Hindu, his siblings were Hindu. And he became a Christian when he, when he met my mom at the University of Singapore. 
Well, when he became a Christian, he was cut off from his family. And, and, and so his side of the family for many, many years was, was, uh, were family members that we didn't spend a lot of time to, that we weren't most time with or were very close to. But occasionally we would see them at gatherings and they would, my parents would continue to try to sort of reach out with hospitality and kindness. And over time, those relationships improved. But I had an uncle... He was married to my dad's sister. It was his brother-in-law. I had an uncle who was very successful as a lawyer, but also would famously get drunk at any party we would have. So, you know, just sort of by day, respectable guy, and then by any party, this drunk guy. And when, when he would get plastered with too many beers, his truth thoughts about God would sort of emerge, you know. And this guy was, I mean, he was a Hindu, so technically he believed in like many gods, but he would always come up to different ones of us, our immediate family, and say in his sort of drunken state, God, do you believe in God? He's like, you know, God is G-O-D. And I was like, I'm glad you can still spell in this state, you know. And then he says, but God backwards is dog, D-O-G. And we're like, okay, also good spelling skills while you're drunk. And then he said, then he said, well, my God is my dog. And I thought, man, I've seen your dog. Like, that's not a very good God. Like, if you're going to pick one. <laughs> and he would do this shtick like every time to the point where when, when Holly and I had a second reception when we got married in 2001, we had a second reception in Malaysia and he was there and he was making his way over to us and I knew he'd had a few too many drinks. And I said, okay, he's going to come over and do this thing about G-O-D and D-O-G. And sure enough, he comes over and he goes, my God is my dog, you know. I'm like, okay, we've been hearing this now. Now, it's not the most intelligent argument against God. (laughs) But the posture, the posture of sort of mockery is a posture that we hear all the time. That for a person who devotes their life to God, his intention was to mock us was to say, you devoted your lives to God. What is God? It could be nothing. It could be my dog. And while people will use different arguments in different words, the attitude remains the same, doesn't it? That for people who believe in a God or God or one God, it seems kind of foolish. Like, why would you do that? I mean, there's all these different religions and people have been wrong before. And so why in the world would you even want to say that there is one God? Why would you even devote so much of your life to this God? Is it even worth it? Like you're crazy. And while I can tell that story in church and we can look at my uncle and say, what a, what a crazy guy. The truth is in the world out there, everyone talks about us and says, look at all these crazy people who believe in God, orienting their lives around this God. Early Christians, when they began to follow Jesus and recognize that Jesus was not just a good teacher or a prophet, but something was going on here, they began to find ways of saying, we confess that it's the one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has somehow come and been revealed in Jesus, but it's more than that. Jesus himself is Lord, and they began to develop confessions about the Father and about the Son and about the Holy Spirit, and a couple hundred years of consistent worship and practice and theology develops and emerges And by the early 300s, these Christian communities are all over the region, and they start to say, you know, we better write this stuff down. We better codify it. And so 300 or or more church leaders and bishops meet in a city called Nicaea, and they write down what we now call the Nicene Creed. Sometimes people see that and like, what's this niceness creed, you guys? It's not the niceness creed. It's the Nicene Creed named after the city of Nicaea. Just, you know, now you know, the more you know, you know. 
325 AD, and later on the creed gets expanded a tiny bit or, or modified a tiny bit, and it gets in its final state in 381 in the city of, at a council in Constantinople. But the creed, and it's out on a banner in the lobby, opens with these words, we believe in one God. And the point that it's trying to make is even as we're about to confess something about the Father, something about the Son, and something about the Holy Spirit, these are not three gods, this is one God. But it is also, this opening line of the creed is also an echo of the ancient Hebrew confession called the Shema. And it's found in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now remember, when this is being said in Deuteronomy, all around them, every other group of people worshipped a plurality of gods. And so in the midst of that, there is divine revelation that says, no, there is one. And so they would say this phrase over and over again, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And it's called the Shema because Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. It's the very first word of this phrase, Shema, hear. And Shema starts with the letter Shem, which looks like a W, and the priests would would, would make their hands in the, in, the, in the shape of that letter when they would bless the people of God. And the rumor is that Leonard Nimoy, when he was playing Dr. Spock and had to come up with something to do with his hands for live long and prosper, being a Jew, said, I'll use the Shema. So there you go. Use that at a, your next cocktail party uh, <laughs> trivia. So the early Christians are building off of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul, when he's writing to Christians in Corinth, a city that had probably just as many Greek and Gentile converts to Christianity as there were Jewish followers of Jesus, is writing to them about idolatry and what to do. And he says, we heard this this morning, hence as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists. These are fake gods. And that there is no God but one. And he's quoting their phrases and their sayings. And he says, indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us as Christians, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, one supreme, one sovereign, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Early Christian theology was not a setting aside of the Old Testament, but saying the Old Testament was the lens, was the picture in one level of clarity, but now we see the picture more fully in Jesus. There is one God, the Father, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom even we exist. And so what I want to do is take the next 10 or 15 minutes and walk through what it means to say this confession that we believe in one God. And anytime you, you make an affirmation, you are inherently making a negation, a negation. You're saying yes to this, and you're saying therefore no to these things. And I want to just outline three things that we are saying no to by saying yes to one God. What does the belief, the Christian confession in one God, what does that first line of the creed, we believe in one God, what does that mean we cannot or do not believe then as a result? And the first is this, one God means we are not saying many gods. You're like, thank you, Glenn, Captain Obvious. Like, this, this is really deep stuff. The proper word for this is polytheism, the idea that there are many gods. Now, I know you're listening to this, and not only are you saying thanks, Captain Obvious, but you're also saying, Glenn, I don't know if anyone told you, but this is America. Like, we, we don't have idols. 
Thank you, Jossie. I think in America, our idols are invisible. But they're every bit as present and pervasive in our world as they are anywhere else. I grew up on a street where the next door neighbor had a shelf outside the front door that had their incense sticks to their idol. Go into other homes and you'd walk through a wall of beads into another sort of sacred space with other idols, Hindu gods, Buddhist rituals. But in America, our idols are not so obvious. (laughs) Our neighbors don't advertise what their idols are. My job, here's my incense stick. In America, we don't advertise, we don't make it so obvious. Like, my relationship is everything. We don't advertise our gods, but they are there nonetheless. Ernest Becker was an American cultural anthropologist who talked about the human need to develop gods or what he would call immortality symbols. And Becker, even as a secular anthropologist, said, we have this anxiety about death. We have this anxiety about dying and becoming irrelevant and being forgotten and fading away into the oblivion. And so in order to make up for our anxiousness about death, we puff up ourselves about our own status. And one strategy that we use is a little bit of what he called character defenses. Look at the family I came from. Look at the schools I went to. Look at the job that I've done. Have you seen my, my latest title that I now have earned? But another strategy that we use, Becker says, is what he calls transference objects. Objects that we give our loyalty to and get our immortality from. Objects that we give our loyalty to and gain immortality from. That's an idol. You give your loyalty to it and you get a feeling of immortality back. Now, it's easy to think of what these things are. I mean, there's, there's an obvious one, the, the, the normal sort of status symbols of house or car or whatever. Uh, there's all kinds of sort of ordinary ones. Oh, yeah, but those are easy to pick out. But then there are some less obvious ones where we sort of think, if only I had this relationship or if only I had this kind of vacation or if only I had this sort of hobby or if only I lived with these sorts of people, if only I had this many followers, if only I could. And what we're doing is we're giving a piece of our loyalty and love and what we hope to gain back is a feeling of transcendence and immortality that our life will sort of echo on after we die, like the quote in the movie Gladiator, what we do here echoes in in eternity. The Greeks and the Romans chased glory for this very reason. They wanted to have lives that echoed beyond their mortal existence, but we do the same thing. We want to have this sort of inheritance to show or this sort of status to prove or this kind of relationship to be able to post about. And then that's how we know that we're living on. So we have our idols. There's also, when we say one God, we're also saying that one God means, or does not mean, many names for the same God. When we confess that we believe in one God, what we're not saying is, oh, well, then then what you're saying is, you know, all religions use different names for the same God. Now, some of you are old enough in the room to be like, I have heard this approach for decades. Like you've heard the story of, 
Well, there's one mountain, but there's many paths up that mountain. And maybe there's a Buddhist path or a Hindu path or a Muslim path or a Christian path or whatever. You know, it's just, hey, man, one mountain, many paths. Or maybe you remember the old parable that sort of became popular decades ago of the blind men and the elephant. You remember this one? Where there's a bunch of blind men and they're like, what's an elephant like? And they're like, I don't know. One guy's got the tail and he's like, an elephant is kind of like a rope. And another guy's blind and he's holding on to a leg and he's like, an elephant is, is like a tree. It's interesting. Wow, elephant, tree, okay. Another blind guy's holding the trunk and, you know, and they come up with different conclusions because they're blind. And so we use this parable in our culture as a way of saying, oh, well, just every religion sees in part and therefore, you know, it's just one God, but many names for this one God. The uh, appearance of this approach is the appearance of humility, right? It's the appearance of saying, oh, well, what do I know? I- I'm just a Christian hanging on to the leg of the elephant. I could be wrong. You could be right. And so it sounds like a very humble approach, except that it's really one of the most arrogant things we could say. Because none of the ancient religions, most of the ancient religions, I should say, aren't claiming to see in part. They're claiming to see the whole. If you sat down with a Muslim and to say, well, you know, I mean, your vision of Allah is just, that's a piece of it, isn't it? He would look at you and say, no, this is what God is like. So we are saying to someone who says, this is what God is like. And we're saying, no, I think what you mean is this is part of what God is like. And so all of a sudden, instead of actually being humble, you're being arrogant because you are standing up to thousands years, thousand year old religions, thousands of years old religions and saying to them, yeah, yeah, that's just the little tail of the elephant. And they're saying, but that's not what we're saying. And we get distracted by this because many names for the same God sounds very polite, but names is not really the issue, is it? Names are a key insight into nature. And it isn't really about, oh, we have different names for the same God. The real question is, are the natures of these gods compatible or incompatible? In other words, if you sat down with a, with a Hindu and said, tell me about Ganesh, and tell me about Krishna, and tell me about these other gods, and ask yourself, does the vision of those gods sound like the description of the God in the Bible. And when you, when you actually push beyond names, you're like, oh, the natures are nothing alike. The visions of these gods are nothing alike. And so this is a bit of a ruse. It's a bit of a, it's a cheap attempt at religious unity by saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's just many names, but it's the same God. And I want to suggest to you that instead of being humility, it is the height of Western arrogance. And those of you that have been in missions, if you go to Asia, if you go to Africa, if you go to other parts of the world where there are ancient religions and you try to say to them, oh, that's cute, but that's just one, that's just your perception of God. They'd say, and who are you to tell me that? And so this many names for the same God is is properly referred to as as, um, pluralism, but it's not The height of humility, it's the height of arrogance. Because it's not the names that matter, but the natures that are being described. Is the Muslim vision of God the same as the Christian vision of God? Is the description of the divine that you find in Buddhism consonant with 
or dissonant with the description that you find of, say, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And so we must set aside childish, thin, nice-sounding things like, well, many names for the same God, and be a little bit more honest with what religions say about themselves. And having grown up in Malaysia, I'll tell you this, it's, you might get some way with a Hindu who's very happy to add other gods to their list. But if I sat down with my friends who were Muslims and said, oh, well, Allah is just the same as Jesus, the conversation would end very abruptly because it's not how they see their faith. The third thing is when you say one God, one God also does not mean mix and match. (laughs) The proper word for this is syncretism, where you can kind of create your own God. Uh, This is sort of a choose-your-own-adventure story or mix and match. This is arts and craft, religious edition. Take a little here, take a little there, and and make it up. Syncretism is as old as the ancient world. You read the Old Testament, and again, how radical it was in the Old Testament for these people of God to say, I know you guys have Baal and Molech and all these other gods, but actually there's only one. The Lord is his name. The Lord is one. It was such a radical claim for Israel that they actually struggled to be true to it. There are many times in the Old Testament where you see Israel being influenced by the people around them and starting to say, yeah, we worship Yahweh, but maybe he's a little bit like this. I mean, you see it right after they're delivered from Egypt, right? All of the plagues that God sends through Moses in Egypt, each of those plagues confront different Egyptian gods. The God of the sun, that's why there's darkness. The God of the Nile, and that's why there's blood in the Nile. A river is supposed to give life, but it brings death. God is confronting all of the Egyptian gods. Israel's like, yeah, you get them, God. He delivers them. They cross on dry land. And what's the first thing they do? They're like, you know, we should build a golden calf. And the amazing thing about the golden calf story is they don't say, let's worship this golden calf and call it Ra or call it Baal. They say, this is the God who delivered us from Egypt. That's the definition of syncretism is you're using part of the truth, but you're mixing it with other pieces. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Not the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is his name, but this cow made of gold. Now we do this all the time. Our word for it is postmodernism. Our word for it is sometimes some versions of progressive Christianity. Where people say, oh, I'm a Christian. And then you press them further and say, well, I'm I'm a Christian who believes that Jesus is a mystical figure that refers to the life force in every being. And as one popular sort of progressive podcaster put it, well, that's a lot of P's in one sentence popular progressive podcaster put it he said he said Christ is the universal form for blah 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 and he says I am Christ you are Christ Muhammad is Christ and there are thousands and thousands of Christians who tune in and listen to episode after episode after episode because it sounds Jesus-y but it is not the gospel It's a mix-and-match syncretism that says that we can sort of take a little of this, take a little of that. Now, again, here's another one of those things that sounds like, oh, but doesn't this sound so enlightened? 
Remember last week when I read you that quote from Nietzsche, the German philosopher who said, society has begun in Germany to live like there is no God, so let's cut with the pretenses already and kill him, and let's just say God is dead. You remember me reading this quote last week? And Nietzsche says, but if we've killed God, we've got to be ready to take his place. And this is what the podcasters will never tell you, is that if you're going to do a mix and match religion, you better be ready to take the throne of the universe. Because what comes with creating your own religion is being your own God. And the the truth is, the soul-crushing weight of being at the center of the cosmos is not a weight that any of us were made for. Who is worthy to open the scrolls? John said, only one. But this mix and match sort of syncretism, it sounds enlightened, it sounds wonderful. I'm just, you know, we're just all just going to make this up as we go along. Well, be prepared then. If you're going to mix and match, then you've put yourself at the center of reality, which means you've got to determine what's good and evil, and you've got to determine what to do about injustice, and you've got to deal with suffering and sin and guilt and shame. And all of a sudden you're realizing, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for that. I just wanted to be cool, man. I just wanted to be, like, better than my fundamentalist roots. I understand the impulse to leave behind your fundamentalist roots, but the answer is not a mix-and-match religion that places you at the center. The answer is the revelation of who God actually is. So we need to be honest this morning and say that actually the confession that there is one God is not automatically good news. (laughs) One God, I mean, think about it. If I said to you, Amy, you can only eat one meal for the rest of your life, you're like, I, what's the meal? You know? And you're like, it's sardines. You're like, yeah. Oneness is not automatically good news. Restricting is not automatically good news. Just because we say there's one God, you're like, what if this God is a monster? That's not good news. What if this God is a tyrant? And so monotheism itself is not yet the gospel. Because monotheism is not automatically good news. One God, great. Is he good? What's he like? Is he loving? We're going to say more in this series about this one God next week. Jason's going to talk about why we call him father, what it means to see him as source. We'll talk about God as the sovereign. We'll talk about God as the merciful. We'll talk about the God who's abounding in in compassion, the God who is faithful to his covenant. We'll say all this and more, but for today I want to say two things. The one God revealed in Scripture is a God who is more than enough. The one God revealed in Scripture is a God who is more than enough. In the story of Genesis, when you read in the Bible, you'll, you'll read the first Two chapters kind of set the groundwork of creation and all that stuff. And then 3 through 11 is a quick hits tour of the world falling apart. And you see the fracture of the relationship between human beings and God, between male and female, between brothers, between the earth and human beings. Genesis 9, the the earth breaks and floodwaters of the deep emerge. It's a way of saying sin breaks the world at its seams. And then the story slows down in Genesis 12 as we start to get a close-up of God and one individual named Abraham. And as God begins to reveal himself in Abraham, it's like that lens and the picture comes one more click into focus. Genesis 14, Abraham learns a name for God and the name is El Elyon, which means God Most High. In Genesis 17, God reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, 
God Almighty. And whatever else these names do and don't mean, we can put them together and say somehow Abraham was getting the picture that this God was the all-supreme, all-sufficient one. In a world of many gods, a God for rain and a God for battle and a God for fertility and a God for this and a God for that, Abraham was saying, I think there is only one God who is not just sovereign, but he's sufficient for us. And as the story goes on, it's as if God is beginning to test Abraham to say, Abraham, am I enough for you? Or will you keep chasing other things? Am I enough for you? And the, the, what's the story we think of when we think of Abraham the most? We think of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it's at one level, the way it's been taught in church sometimes is, it's one of the most disturbing stories ever. If you're like, if this is supposed to show me the goodness of God, I am scared out of my ever-loving mind. A God who would ask for a child sacrifice? But this is going to the story with 21st century eyes. Go back to the story in Abraham's day. Abraham's father was an idol maker. And in many, many, many pagan religions, the highest form of devotion you could show was child sacrifice. And so God says, I'm going to meet Abraham where he is. This is what some theologians call the condescension of God. God condescending to our level and saying, okay, Abraham, all you know is that devotion means giving up your children. So I'm going to see if you will express in the only language you know the act of devotion. And Abraham says, okay, yes, I'll take Isaac. But it's interesting that even then, Abraham, has, he knows something about God's nature. El Elyon and El Shaddai, something in about this all-sufficient God that he knows, I don't really think this is the end of the story. How do we know that? Genesis 22, Abraham tells his servants, the boy and I are going up to worship and we will return. Well, either Abraham's lying or he's got something deep down that he's like, I don't know. I don't know if Isaac is really going to die up there. The New Testament will tell us that Abraham believed in the God who raises the dead. Right? But then later in the chapter, Isaac is like, Dad, we've got the firewood. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham doesn't say, stop asking me questions, boy. Do as you're told. Abraham says, son, the Lord will provide. He hasn't seen the full picture in focus yet, but he's like, I know something about El Shaddai that he's going to provide. The God who is more than enough has got to be different than this. And in the end, he gets up there and the angel stops him and Abraham looks and there's a ram caught in the thicket and he names this mountain. On this mountain, the Lord provides, the Lord will provide, the Lord sees to provide. And all of a sudden you recognize this was God's elaborate way of saying, Abraham, all you have known is the God of Molech and the God of Baal and the gods who require these, these horrible sacrifices. And he's like, I want to show you that I am better than those gods. This is the God who doesn't simply require sacrifice. This is the God who provides the sacrifice. And that's the picture coming into focus one more click. If all we knew of that story was, well, God requires sacrifice, all the pagan gods require sacrifice. What's different about this one God is he actually provides it. He provides the very thing that he requires. And the question for us is the same question that was before Abraham. Do you believe that God is enough for you? Do you believe that God is enough? 
The second thing I want to say, and we'll close with this, the one God revealed in Scripture is a God who is worthy of all your love. Jesus said, no one has seen the Father, but if you know me, you know the Father. And then in the Gospels, Jesus echoes Deuteronomy, and he says in Mark 12, when they asked him which commandment is the first of all, verse 29, Jesus answered, the first is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. If God is one, that means our response to him needs to be total, not partial. If you needed many gods, then you could give him a partial response because you're like, well, I've got to hedge my bets a bit. Can I have a little portfolio of religion here, please? A little portfolio of faith. I just want to hedge my bets, make sure that I'm saved from the worst case scenario. If there's only one, then you don't need to hedge your bets. Go all in. Put it all in him. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. The psalmist said, give me an undivided heart. Not only is the question for us, do you believe that God is enough, but the question before us is, then will you respond to him with wholehearted surrender? Will he get all of you? The rest of the story about my uncle is that as he got older in life, he continued the conversations with my parents. And when it came time and he got very ill and he was on his deathbed, he called my dad to come to the hospital. And in that moment, faced with his own mortality, it wasn't drunken jokes or the success of his career as a lawyer that carried him. But in that moment, on the brink of death, he said, I want to believe in Jesus. And my dad got to lead him to the Lord. Amen. There are these moments when we come to the edge and we say, you know what? I've been, what a fool I've been. I've kind of thought I'll put a little bit of my loyalty here and I'll put a little bit of my loyalty chasing pleasure and sex and whatever and everything, my career and all this stuff and and fun and hobbies and I'll just parcel out my heart to a thousand different hobbies. At some point you got to recognize it'll never love you back. It'll never love you back. And in that cold, fearful moment in the hour of death, What we need is not a heart that is parceled out to a million different loyalties, but a heart that surrenders to the only God who has ever loved you. Would you stand with me this morning?